In chapter 23, verse 1, the whole company of them arose, that is the Sanhedrin. Jesus has been through three trials at this point, two pre-trial hearings and then an official trial. And they brought him before Pilate. This is the first trial before the Romans. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. We saw that in chapter 9. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. It's the second time we've seen that, isn't it? And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. In the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, there's a man, the main character of the book, the movie in fact, Edmond Dantes. He is falsely accused for a crime and he is sentenced to life in prison on an island where he really seeks his freedom, and, but yet it's a place where he is beaten and isolated consistently. And so he does all he can do to procure this freedom, including writing letters to family and friends, but they never receive those letters. Well, after years of this, Edmund has lost hope. He knows and believes that he's going to spend the rest of his life in this prison. And then one day, to his surprise, the prisoner in the cell next to him, known as the Mad Priest, accidentally digs his way into Edmund's cell. The mad priest is trying to escape. And so he accidentally digs his way into Edmund's cell and they determine together to dig their way out of this prison. Eight years into this process, the mad priest sadly is killed. Rocks fall on top of his head. And so they put him in a, in a body bag and they're going to throw him out into the ocean. Edmund gets an idea. And through this idea, he's going to be saved. He's going to be saved by switching his body. And so he takes the mad priest, puts him into his cell, and then he climbs into this body bag. And so when the prison guards come to get the body bag, they take it and they throw it into the ocean. And Edmund is saved. Salvation by substitution. Does that sound familiar? Well, that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. Jesus is our substitute. It's one of the most important terms in understanding the gospel. Substitution. Salvation through substitution. And every aspect of his life is a, 
is important to our salvation. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute in his state of humiliation, as the theologians call it, and in his state of exaltation. As our, uh, as our substitute in his state of humiliation, uh, Jesus is born in that in a low condition. He comes under the law, undergoes all the miseries of this life, he comes under the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and is buried and remains under the power of death for a time. That's his state of humiliation. After that, he is going to be raised from the grave. He will ascend to the Father where he rules at the right hand of the Father, and then he will come to judge the world in the last day. That's his state of exaltation. Jesus is our substitute in his state of humiliation, and Jesus is our substitute in his state of exaltation. Well, our present text, all the way up to the time of his resurrection, is speaking to his substitution for us in his state of humiliation. And as we've seen, uh, he has gone before Annas, who was the former high priest, then he goes before Caiaphas. All of this is taking place on what is probably, theologians believe, April the 3rd, uh, 33 A.D. It's the morning of his cross. He'll be hung on the cross around 9 a.m. And so he's already seen Annas. He's already seen Caiaphas. He's already gone before the Sanhedrin. He's already been betrayed. Uh, he's had a disciple deny him three times. It's been a very bad night. And then the Sanhedrin, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. Now, we saw this last time where they ask him after he has already said, you will see the Son of Man uh, seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in response to that, they ask him, so, are you the Son of God? Now, the reason they would ask that is because they are connecting this exaltation language where Jesus is claiming to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. They are connecting that, Psalm 110, with Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, you see in verses 6 and 7, he says, As for me, the Lord is speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now that's important. That tells us that he has a king, a Messiah, that he is going to set in Zion, that is at his right hand. And then the king speaks. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so Jesus, by claiming to sit at the right hand of the Father, is claiming to be the Son of God. And that's why they asked him that question. So, are you the Son of God? And when he acknowledges that, that's when they indict him for blasphemy. And so, they're going to bring him to Pilate. And the reason for that, John 18 tells us, is because the Jews did not have the right to capital punishment. Only the Romans had the right to capital punishment. And so they're going to bring him to the Romans in order to have him punished. And Pilate is the first one he's going to see. And what we're going to see in the first six verses is that Jesus is going to suffer under Pontius Pilate. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Then the whole company of them arose 
and brought him before Pilate. Now the whole company here, who is that? It's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, Fa the Pharisees and the Sadducees hardly agreed on anything. The Pharisees were the conservatives, if you will. They believed that the Old Testament as we know it was the Word of God. They believed in the future bodily resurrection of the saints. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Moses, if you will. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in resurrection. And as the old preacher said, that's why they were sad, you see. Um, there was very little these two groups had in common. And yet you see here, the whole company of them arose. They agree on one thing. They hate Jesus. And hatred towards Jesus and to His saints always uh, bring unity. Now, Pontius Pilate served as the governor of Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. Um, he was hated by the Jews. That's just an understatement. Uh, he was hated by the Orthodox Jews, and let me just tell you, he didn't like them either. He did not get along with the Jews. He didn't get them. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, speaks a great deal about this. They considered Pontius Pilate as greedy and condescending towards them. He did things to intentionally provoke them. For instance, there were these monies, Josephus writes about, that were devoted to temple service. Alright? He takes those monies and he uses them to build aqueducts. To put that in perspective, it would be like some monies being committed to the evangelical churches in Louisville. And our mayor or our governor taking those monies to build a bridge or something like that. Well, that didn't go over well with the Jews. And there were many other instances as well. Now, this particular event uh, where Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate is immortalized in a famous line from the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Have you ever heard that line? Now that tells you how important it was to the early church that they would put that line in the creed. And this rightly reminds us that Jesus, what He experienced on the way to the cross is rooted in time and space. Well, skeptics have... Uh, very often denied this and dismissed this. In fact, uh, many skeptics through the ages have believed that the Gospels were filled with fantasy and, and myth. And one of the things they would argue is, there is no evidence that a man named Pontius Pilate ever even lived. The only evidence there is that this Pilate uh, lived is the New Testament, the Gospels. And so, skeptics have said, there you have it. This is not a historical document. This is some kind of fantasy, some kind of fairy tale. There's no Pontius Pilate. And that was uh, a prevalent argument in liberal circles until 1961. When some Italian archaeologists found an inscription at Herod's Amphitheater in Caesarea that read, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, 
has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. So not only did he exist, his name was placed on a very important uh, monument in Caesarea. In fact, they have also since uncovered the very pavement that Jesus stood on as he is standing before Pontius Pilate. Now, the last time we saw Pilate was Luke 13. In Luke 13, some, some, uh, some people come to Jesus and they tell, them, tell him about what had happened, likely on Passover, a um, couple or three years earlier, where some Galileans were offering a sa- their sacrifices. And Pilate, out of some kind of um, venom or rage, uh, or maybe perhaps he was suspicious that the Galileans were, were, were seeking to revolt, he sends soldiers into this service, and they kill these Galilean worshipers, and then they mix their blood with the blood of the animal sacrifices. We saw that in Luke chapter 13. So that shows you how notorious, how uh, vindictive and murderous this man is. But the Sanhedrin, they're bringing these charges to Pilate. And if we remember last time, the reason they're charging Jesus is because of blasphemy. Okay, he's claimed to be the Son of God. We saw last time that there are those today who say Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be deity. Well, you need to tell the Sanhedrin that because when he claimed to be the Son of God, he was, that's exactly what he was saying. He is saying, I am God, a very God. If you're the son of a duck, what does that tell you? You're a duck, all right? Um, and they understood exactly what he was saying, and so they are accusing him of blasphemy. But guess what? The Romans don't care about blasphemy. They don't give a rip about blasphemy. And so what's going to happen is that the Sanhedrin here is going to have to change the charge from religious accusations to political accusations. And so that's exactly what they do. And what you see uh, is really... Uh, you see this played out later in Acts. Acts chapter 21 to Acts chapter 24. The same thing happens with the Apostle Paul. You've got the religious leaders and the Jews who are accusing him of blasphemy. But they know that Felix, the Roman governor, doesn't care anything about blasphemy. And so they change the charges from religious to political ones. And those charges are laid out here in verse 2. It says they began to accuse him. And there's three accusations. Now, this is very important. Why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Well, this isn't fully the truth, but you see partly here uh, the truth. We, he said, we found this man, number one, misleading our nation. Number two, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking how slander is one of the real common methods of the evil one. Uh, After all, this is the hour of the power of darkness. We saw that in chapter 22. Um, And he's the father of lies. And the devil knows one thing. He knows he cannot thwart the purposes of God. He knows that. He's not a dummy. So what he seeks to do is discredit God's messengers. You see this throughout the Bible. How often does... 
the psalmist David lament that malicious slanders have risen against him. This week we were reading in our family devotions, Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he is called the troubler of Israel. You see this throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Paul, uh, a couple of Monday nights ago, we're praying in here, uh, Paul, we uh, saw, is, was called a plague. I mean, he was called a plague and one who stirs up riots among all the Jews. And then the, uh, the disciples themselves were accused of turning the world upside down. And so we see him employing this method here as well. There is real spiritual warfare involved in this account. And we, for our part, should never be shocked when we are slandered as the people of God, if the one who is holy and blameless and above reproach in every way was not immune to slander, we should meet not shocked when we are called to drink of the same cup. That's part of what it means to bear the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the accusations here are threefold. The first accusation we see uh, they claim that this man Jesus is misleading our nation. That is, they were accusing Jesus of persuading uh, the people uh, of Israel to be disloyal to the Romans. Of course, how could that be? Here was the man who taught us to love our enemies. Here was the man who gave the parable of the Good Samaritan to teach us about loving our neighbor. So this was nonsense. The second accusation, he says, or they say, that he was forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. We saw that in chapter 20, verse 25, but exactly the opposite of what he was doing. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God to God. And if you remember, he had taken a coin. It was, it was a denarius. And this denarius had the image of the Caesar on the coin. And we learned there, that meant that coin belonged to Caesar. It was created in his image. And to be created in the image of the king meant ownership. So Jesus subtly is saying, all right, you render under Caesar what is Caesar, because that belongs to Caesar. You render unto God what is God's? And we are the image of God. And as the image of God, we belong to God. Every aspect of our lives belong to Him. Our time, our resources, our talents, everything belongs to God. And one of the real expressions of our submission to His ownership is to submit to Caesar. And so Jesus was saying the exact opposite of what they were claiming. He was saying, yes, you pay your taxes, you render to Caesar what is his. Well, neither one of these charges are really relevant to Pilate. He knows that it's nonsensical. But the third accusation has traction with him. They say that he is saying that he himself is Christ a king. Pilate's not going to tolerate someone intruding, claiming sovereign rule in his territory. 
So it's this third accusation that really gets Pilate's attention. So notice in verse 3, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is very important, this question. Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, those kind of questions have been raised. And the reason they're raised, and the reason Luke speaks to these questions, is because a very important part of our Christian lives is in coming to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And so, for instance, in Luke chapter 5, when he, he forgives the paralytic and his friends, and then he heals him, the Pharisees ask, Who is this that forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. They were exactly right. Why is that the case? Because when we sin, God is the one we sin against. And only the one in whom is sinned against can forgive. For instance, if you have three, three men, uh, Larry, Curly, and Moe, and Larry were to hit Curly, Moe's not going to help the situation by saying, Larry, I forgive you for hitting Curly. Alright? No, why? Because Larry did not offend Moe. He offended Curly. Only Curly has the authority to forgive Larry. So when Jesus tells this uh, paralytic and his friends, your sins are forgiven, he just met them. But what he was saying is this. Every sin you have ever committed in your life was committed against me. That's why the Pharisees asked that question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then, later on in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison. This did not fit his eschatology. He didn't understand that the kingdom was going to erupt into two stages. Uh, an already, but a not yet, if you will. And so he is, he is in prison, waiting his death, and he sends a messenger back to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for another? What was he asking? Are you the Messiah? Are you the longed-for king? And then you have in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. And a hurricane comes upon the boat. And Jesus awakens from his sleep only after they woke him up. And it says he rebuked the wind. How do you rebuke a hurricane? And they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? See, all of these questions are being posed so that Luke can answer them. Luke is writing to Theophilus so that he would have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. He's writing to Fisherville so that we would have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. And then last week we saw the question where they asked him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Well, notice Jesus' response to Pilate here. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now, that's a weird kind of answer, but Jesus is affirming the answer. He's affirming the question, except he recognizes that Pilate has a whole eternally different concept of kingship 
than he has himself. But he does acknowledge the question and he affirms it. And that's why Paul will say later in 1 Timothy 6 verse 13 that Jesus before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. That's the language that's used in 1 Timothy. He made the good confession. What is the good confession? Well, it's the hope of the Bible. Jesus is the longed for king. He was Israel's hope. And because he was Israel's hope, he's our hope. You say, why is that the case? Because Israel's hopes were bound up in the seed of Abraham who would come and judge the enemies of God and save the people of God and vindicate the name of God. And for instance, you have in Isaiah 9, this one who will sit on David's throne and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 11, uh, Isaiah speaks about this one who would come from the stem of the stump of Jesse. What is a stump? It's a cut off tree. It's death. Isaiah is writing in a day when, when the, the, the temple is going to be destroyed. Israel is in exile and there is no Davidic king, which means there is no hope in the world. And Isaiah is speaking about the one who will come. In fact, uh, in that same passage, it says that through his ministry, he will be so endowed with the Spirit of God that he will usher in a new order of things where the lion will lay down with the lamb and the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. This is the kind of king that Pilate did not understand. In fact... In John 18's account, the same conversation is taking place. John just gives us different information, not conflicting information. He's just giving a different account of what took place here, um, giving us different details. And Jesus said to Pilate on this question, My kingdom is not of this world. Okay? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be not delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. Can't get any clearer than that. Jesus, why did you come into the world? To be a king. To set things right. Okay? Why do we need a king? Because we are weak and helpless. We need someone in our sinful, rebellious state to subdue us to God. To rule over us and defend us. To restrain and conquer all of His and our enemies. That's why we need a king. And Jesus is this king. But in that same passage in Isaiah 11, it says, He shall strike the earth with a rod, and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. That part uh, Pilate did not get. And so at this point, Pilate believes that Jesus is utterly harmless. Notice in verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt 
in this man. Now, this is a very important truth in this chapter. Let me give you a Bible study tip. When something is emphasized over and over again in a section of Scripture, that signals to you, the Bible reader, that this is one of the main points of this section of Scripture. We don't have the authority to make the main point ourselves. Okay? We don't have the authority to determine what's important to us. The text sets the agenda. The Spirit is the one who inspires the text. And what He inspires, okay, is what He illumines. And notice how often you see this. I find no guilt in this man. Look down in verse 14. After examining before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Notice verse 15. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. If you look in verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And then if you look down in verse 41, you have uh, a criminal who confesses this. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And then in chapter 23, verse 47, the centurion who famously said, certainly this man was innocent. So you've got uh, four different people in this passage who are claiming... um, the innocence, the righteousness, if you will, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And part of the reason that's important is that historically it teaches us that Jesus wasn't a criminal, that He was wrongly put to death. But there's also a theological reason why this is important. If we're going to stand before God, okay, and be deemed as a son and daughter of God and be allowed, permitted into His Holy of Holies, if you will, His presence, heaven, we must be as righteous and holy as God is. God cannot de-God Himself. He is not like the unscrupulous janitor who at the end of the day sweeps the dust underneath the rug. Or like your children who when they go clean their bed, throw everything under the bed or in the closet. That's not the way God is. God is just and holy. If you're going to come into His presence, you have to be holy as He is holy. And so Jesus Christ is the righteous one. For 30 Three years, Jesus Christ had loved the Lord his God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. He was the righteous one. Not one time in his life did he ever disobey the Ten Commandments. He obeyed them fully. Okay? He is the righteous one. If we're going to stand before God, we need that alien righteousness. It's what the Reformers talked about when they said imputed righteousness. We stand before God because of Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us. It's credited to us. It's an alien righteousness. So that I stand before Him, yes, I'm still a sinner, but I'm declared righteous in His sight because of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's the theological reason why this was crucial. 
And Herod at this point sees no reason. There is nothing in this man that is guilty. But they're going to persist. They are going to uh, continue to attack. Notice in verse 5. It says, But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Pilate knew what was behind this. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 tell us they knew, he knew, that the Jews were envious. That's the word. In two different places, they were envious of Jesus. Why do you get envy? Why why, why do you get envious? Why are you jealous? It's because of of an idol in your life. Okay? You're, You're seeking your identity in some kind of created thing, horizontally, if you will, someone else has more of that than you do. Okay? And because you're not finding your identity in the Lord Jesus Himself, God Himself, someone else has more of what you think you need to be happy, to be whole, to be content, to be satisfied, to have a life that's meaningful. Jesus had the crowd's affection. They wanted that. They were into this religious thing for their glory. Jesus was getting what they wanted. And so they were envious of Jesus. And what does envy do? Envy and unrighteous anger come together and they form a union. Um, and, And out of that comes crazy, slanderous things. Leon Moore said what these Jews had said to Pilate prepared him to meet a resistance fighter. It wasn't even reality. But one glance at Jesus was enough to show the utter absurdity of such an idea. And so what Pilate's going to try to do now is he's going to try to find a loophole. He fears the Jews enough and their influence that he recognizes he can't just throw it off. He can't just dismiss this thing, but he's going to try to find a loophole. Notice in verse 6, when Pilate heard this, what did he hear? That Jesus was from Galilee. He asked whether the man was a Galilean. And at this point, what, what Pilate is going to do is he's going to transfer the whole trial over to Herod's jurisdiction. All right? And so Jesus has suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now he's going to suffer uh, under Herod. Notice in verse 7. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. A trial in the empire, the Roman Empire, could at that time be carried out in one of two places. It could be carried in the province in which the crime was committed, or in the place where the accused lived. Okay? And so Jesus was from Galilee, and so Herod was the uh, tetrarch, if you will, of Galilee. And so Pilate's going to push this, uh, this uh, Nazarene, this man, over onto uh, Herod. Now Herod, we've already seen in Luke, was a very wicked man. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. Later on, in a very short time, 
He's going to have James killed in Acts chapter 12. He was the one that Jesus called that fox. Um, But what's also interesting about Herod, there seemed to be, in a time in his life, that he was actually sensitive about spiritual things. Mark chapter 6 tells us that he loved to hear John the Baptist preach. Imagine that. If you see someone today in our culture who loves to hear good preaching, what do you think about them? Well, that's that's a spiritual man. That's a mature person. Okay, this person loves uh, Billy Graham, all right? Uh, That person must be uh, pretty healthy spiritually. Well, guess what? Herod loved good preaching. And Herod was not right with God. Herod loved to hear John the Baptist preach. um, But Herod did not like what John the Baptist called him to do when he told him, that he was unlawful in marrying his brother's wife. He was an adulterer. And so Herod had all these spiritual sensitivities, this curiosity, if you will, but it was a spiritual curiosity without a willingness to repent. Okay? And that's what makes him especially dangerous now. Why is that? Because he had played with the gospel. Okay? He had played with spiritual things without committing. And when you do that, you can be vaccinated from the gospel. You know what a vaccination is? You go on a mission trip somewhere, they give you a vaccination, or perhaps you, you're vaccinated for the flu. What, are the, what do they do when they vaccinate you? They give you just enough flu to keep you from getting the real thing. This man had played with the Word of God. He had played with the Gospel. But in such a way that he was not willing to repent of his sins. And now, he was past that. He was over that. He was vaccinated. Now notice in verse 8. When when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him. Notice, because he'd heard about him and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. Herod was glad to see Jesus. He was interested in Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. Not as a worshiper. He saw Jesus as a circus act. Not as the Christ. And it's also interesting at this point that any spiritual interest he had is now gone. That's why it's dangerous to go to church. If you're not coming to do business with the living God. And how do you do business with the living God? It begins with repentance. Okay? If you're coming here and you think, I'm going to appease God, the sovereign of the universe, by getting up early on Sunday and coming to church, that means nothing without repentance. And at this point, this man is past repentance. He is a dangerous man as a result. He had disabled. He is staring Jesus in the face. The Son of God. The infinitely righteous and holy Son of Man. Son of God. The King of the earth. And He sees nothing. There's nothing about Him that stirs Him. And this reminds us how fragile the conscience can be. Now notice in verse 9. 
So he questioned him at some length. This is what's so fearful. He made no answer. He questioned him at length. And Jesus made no answer. I mean, what an opportunity to have a personal audience with Jesus. What if Herod has said, I want to know how to have my sins forgiven. What if he had asked him, I, I want to know how to be delivered from wickedness. I, I want to know how to enter the kingdom of God. I'll do anything. You tell me. How do I enter the kingdom? But he didn't ask those questions. How do we know that? Because Jesus always answers those questions. Jesus did not answer this man. He goes down in history as the only man in Jesus' earthly ministry that Jesus didn't answer a word. It's very haunting words. But he made no answer. And here we see Jesus as our suffering and silent servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 7. I'm reading the last lion. William Manchester's remarkable magnum opus on uh, the great prime minister of, of London. Uh, England during War War Two, uh, Winston Churchill, and it's interesting. In one of the chapters, it begins with these words: that he earned, uh, he made much of his money through libel lawsuits. Uh, people would slander him, okay, and then he would uh, have a lawsuit against this person, and he. He earned a lot of money doing it that way. So if you were going to slander Winston Churchill, you were going to pay. And it says that he won every one of his cases. Winston Churchill was a great man, okay? Uh, he really changed the course of history. Uh, as he took on Hitler, I mean, no one else believed what he was saying about Hitler. And the reason he knew what Hitler was going to do is he had read Mein Kampf. No one else had read it. He knew exactly what Hitler was going to do. And uh, he was used in history remarkably, in a very real sense, to, to save the war, to save us from uh, Hitler. And yet he had his flaws, didn't he? Someone talked bad about him, he'd sue them. Not Jesus. He's being slandered and he opened not his mouth. He's the suffering servant for us. We saw that he, he died on the cross for us. He lived, but he also suffered for us as the Son of God. But another angle. Herod has silenced the voice of God. Do you get that? It's possible to silence the voice of God. Jesus had reasoned with Judas. Okay? He had reasoned with the Sanhedrin. He had even responded to Pilate. But to Herod, he says nothing at all. His day of grace, his opportunity for grace was over. And this interview clearly disappoints Herod. And it's going to set him off. Notice in verse 10. 
the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. It's the second time he's been mocked. He was mocked as a prophet in chapter 22. Here he's mocked as a king, then arraying him in splendid clothing. Mark 15 tells us they put a purple robe on him. That was a regal robe, okay? A kingly robe. And then they took these thorns and they shaped it into this crown. They placed the crown of thorns on his head and they began to mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! After mocking him, it says they sent him back to Pilate. Just utter dismissal. Mocking him. But the real issue is that Herod didn't take Jesus' kingship seriously. That's the real issue. Just dismissive. And when we refuse to bow the knee to Jesus in any area of our lives, you're guilty of the very same thing. Well, this is just one area. I, I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have many places or areas of my life that are rebellious. I've just got this one area I'm going to protect. Any area that you refuse to bow the knee, uh, the knee to King Jesus to, you are demonstrating the same kind of uh, mentality as Herod. So whether it's your finances, I don't trust you, Lord. I don't trust you. Uh, I would rather use my finances in this area. No, that's the Herod syndrome. Or perhaps there's a, a pet sin in your life that you refuse to submit to King Jesus to. That's the Herod syndrome. Okay? Perhaps it's your marriage and you're not loving your spouse the way the Bible clearly teaches you to love her or him. That's the Herod syndrome. Here's a man who is dismissing Jesus as king. You see, kings are not to be negotiated with. They're to be reverenced. And Herod is dismissing him. And the way we reverence a king is to obey, to submit. And so if Jesus is your king, it's going to show itself. It's going to show it in the way you treat the local church. If you just float in and out, and... You may attend, but you're not involved in body life. That reflects something about your understanding of Jesus. It reflects something about your, the degree to which you've committed to Him because He bled and died for the church. One of the real expressions of love for Jesus is love for His bride. Okay? It's going to evidence itself in your marriage. It's going to evidence itself when you open up that computer screen. Or turn on those movies. It's going to evidence itself when you write your check and balance your budget. It's going to evidence itself. Kings are not negotiated with. They are reverenced. Well, at this point, Herod does not see Jesus as king. But he also knows that this man is not guilty of what he's being charged with. So he's going to send him back to Pilate. To Pilate's chagrin. And it's going to lead to the final trial we'll look at next week. But in verse 12, it says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day 
For before this, they had been at enmity. We don't know why they were at enmity. Um, we don't know why they hated each other. But again, Jesus and common hatred towards Jesus creates uh, remarkable alliances. It's also mentioned, uh, interestingly, again, in Acts chapter 4. Uh, I think we have it on the board. Uh, the apostles are preaching. And notice what it says in Acts chapter 4, verses, verse 27. Truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. All the culprits who had Jesus nailed to the cross. And the apostles in this same sermon appeal interestingly to, uh, to another passage we've already looked at. Acts, uh, uh, Psalm chapter 2. In this same sermon, notice verses 26 or 25 and 26. God, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? He is quoting... Psalm chapter 2, the very psalm that got Jesus indicted. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, they referenced Psalm chapter 2. And now, the apostles have turned that psalm back on them. Because Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, say these words, Why do the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. The apostles are saying these very men who turned their back on Jesus are the kings and the rulers here who've turned their back against the Lord and His anointed. And I love what that psalm goes on to say, to say in Psalm 2 verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. I heard a black preacher say one time, when God laughs, there ain't nothing funny. But what, is, what that psalm is telling us is that these rulers, these kings, they set themselves up against God's anointed, but it will be to no avail because that's not the final word. In fact, Psalm 2 gives us the final word. Listen to how Psalm 2 ends. In Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the Messiah, the King speaking. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and of the ends of the earth your possession. God is speaking to the king. You ask of me, even prayer matters with the Godhead. You ask of me and I will give the nations your earth your possession. Notice, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Who's he referring to there? He's referring to those who refuse to come to him in submission and obedience. And He is going to judge. He's going to judge. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Isn't that beautiful language? Kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath 
is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's why these apostles would have quoted Psalm 2. Because there was a time when it looked like all hope was gone. Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was put to death by these rulers, these kings. But that was not the final word. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Takeaways here. I think there are takeaways for two groups. The unbeliever. If you don't kiss the Son, if you don't find refuge in Him, you're going to be judged just like the the kings and the rulers of this earth. You know, it's interesting. Paul says that in that day of judgment, it says now that we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that the whole world would become guilty before God. Every mouth will be silenced in that day. You will not have anything to say in that day. There will be no excuses. You can't play the victim card in that day. Your mouth is going to be silenced. But if you will kiss the Son, if you will find refuge in the Son, He will speak up as your advocate. And the one who was silent in his own defense will speak in your defense. And He will plead His merits to the Father. He will say, yes, this person is a sinner. This person is vile and wicked and rebellious. But he's kissed me, Father. He's found refuge in me. So I appeal to my righteousness, my blood. Forgive this person of his, of her sins. And for the believer, you know, the Bible is a lot like a physical at the doctor. You go in, there's no symptoms. Everything is well in your world. And when the doctor is done with you, you realize you're not as healthy as you really think you are. That's why preaching, that's why Bible study is so important. You don't even realize how unhealthy you just might be. When you open up a text like this and you're not stirred from your very affections, When you're not stirred to gratitude, thanksgiving, and awe for this king, something is wrong. Something is wrong. You're not as healthy as you think you are. And that's why this text is so important. You know, it's possible to be deceived into worshiping another Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that it's possible for a believer to be deceived into worshiping another Jesus. A a Jesus of your own imagination. And it just may be the reason you're bored, the reason you're listless and just going through the motions, the reason you won't sacrifice one red cent or your time and your talents for the kingdom of Christ is that you're worshiping another Jesus. But when you see the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke, the only proper response, as the hymn says, this text demands my soul, my life, my all. Where are you today? Now here's the beautiful thing. If you will come to Jesus... And repent of your boredom and listlessness and going through the motions. He's not going to do you like he did Herod. He will answer you. 
and he will 